0: Hello, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated with Jimmy and Jean. This is Jimmy LaSalle. We continue with World War I with part two in our discussion. We welcome back Laura Vogt, curator of education and interpretation at the National World War II Museum and Memorial, who recorded this with Jean Ann over two days. They had one call, which we put in part one, and now this is the second call, which is making up part two. We pick up the conversation with the armistice and the treaties that were made, as well as what they meant. In the description of this podcast, I am also adding before and after maps, showing changes to the world after the Great War. And now we turn it over to our resident history expert, Jeanne Anzanakis, and her guest, Laura Vogt. Jeanne and Laura, take it away.
1: So one of the things that you had mentioned the last time we spoke that I really enjoyed was this notion that there is this sort of bravado that the United States is coming in, and we are winning this war, but it's Great Britain's military. It is France's sacrifice. And if you look at the Battle of Verdun, for example, there's no greater example of France's sacrifice in that particular battle. If you're looking at maybe the reasoning why Great Britain and France wanted Germany punished so much. Before we get into the treaty, can you kind of speak about the armistice a little bit and, you know, what that kind of meant for ending the war? The armistice, uh, what is
2: put into place in the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918 is an agreement that ceases the firing on the western front and in many ways quells the war and some individuals would say that it is the end of the war and yet there is fighting that continues in Africa our US military is still uh, deployed in Russia through 2019 and you have individuals even who aren't fighting that you know still are are uh, taking, uh, there's there's a, a lot of time to disassemble conflict as well. So it is important, and I appreciate your wording, right? It's that armistice, it's this agreement that occurs at that time frame. And it does turn the tide. It, it does kind of bring an end to this combat aspect of the war that ultimately begins to trickle down for this particular conflict. And at the same time, it doesn't end the ways that this conflict, this war between nations and war between these inhabited continents uh, ultimately is going to start other conflicts. Um, And then the long process of creating peace, which some uh, would rightly say is far more difficult to create than war.
1: Yeah. I mean, in the United States, this armistice, you know, it's celebrated, it's known as Armistice Day. And after World War II, we, we look at November 11th, and we still make it a day to honor and to celebrate, you know, today, it's known as Veterans Day. But if you look how it's that date is still celebrated in Europe, you know, Great Britain and France, they, they call it Remembrance Day. There are these very solemn ceremonies every year marking the sacrifice of their, of their soldiers. There's a really important role
2: that commemoration and remembrance takes for communities. And that was intentional among those who lived through this world war, this great war. They wanted to mark the occasion so that others would continue to remember the sacrifices that occurred because they really are horrific. You have just entire towns that are decimated, uh, particularly in and around Europe and, and uh, you know, in some parts of, of Canada where these villages are going to come together and create cenotaphs with the names of the dead who gave their lives for their nations who gave their lives for a greater ideal they wanted to mark that courage honor patriotism and sacrifice and so you do see this and it this culture of remembrance of that era really does shift how we memorialize not only is it an active day uh, but if you take a look around your different communities you might find That there is a memorial that is a building or a theater, or that there is a water fountain that is dedicated to the sacrifices of those in the world war because there is a push to create something that would, in some ways, right, engage the living. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you think about the stadium at Notre Dame, that is a uh, that was dedicated to, it, it is a memorial to World War One. The Opera House in San Francisco is a memorial to World War One. At the National World War One Museum, a memorial, we too are a memorial to this catastrophic event. People wanted individuals to learn from what was their present and what would become our history. And, and there's something incredibly important about that. And uh, for those listeners who don't know, around Veterans Day, especially in nations that used to be a part of uh, the British Empire in the 20th century, uh, people will put on a poppy. And that poppy has a direct tie back to World War One. There is a poem that was written by a Canadian doctor, Cray, and it was called In Flanders Fields. In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow beneath the crosses row on row. And he is a doctor who has just gone through a really difficult, is not an easy space to be a medical professional. And so he is writing about having to heal these individuals who are so deeply wounded. And it has such beautiful imagery and it becomes widely published, this idea of this poppy. And the poppy really does grow and it flourishes across the Western Front. And they realize it's because of the nitrates, the nitrates of the ammunition and the nitrates of really all... The, these decomposing bodies that made the soil very rich for poppies to bloom all over, all over France, and all along the Western Front. And so, wow. when he wrote about it, it was because it was his lived experience. And then there is a American woman, Moina Michael, who says that she is going to wear a poppy until the end of her life in remembrance of this particular, uh, of this moment in history, of this. Uh, because of this poem penned by this Canadian who is fighting for the British, this idea of selling poppies came about, and she takes it over to the British, and it gets brought up in Australia and in a variety of other spaces. And so you end up having this idea of a red poppy as a remembrance flower that, still a hundred years on, individuals will uh, will wear in remembrance of the First World War.
1: Yeah, it's unbelievable, and it's and it's still so moving to this day when you see those ceremonies and you see people wearing the poppies and and those memories and rightfully so they're they're still very much there. You know, there was this thought that at the peace conference or this goal, well, we want to make this the war to end all wars. We know in hindsight, there was another one, right? But there was this idea that we want to establish peace. And so this peace conference is held in Paris at the palace of Versailles And for you know, about five months, you have these representatives from all these different countries who are working to get a peace treaty together. And there are a number of treaties, you know, that end World War I. You know, most of the time you hear people talk about the Treaty of Versailles. Well, that was the treaty with Germany, but there are treaties with Austria-Hungary, there are treaties with the Ottoman Empire. You will see the map of Europe kind of completely changed. You have fallen empires, you have new countries. And so for, there's this theory of like the big four, you have all these other countries, but there are these key players, right? You have Great Britain, you have France, you have the United States, you have Italy. And for Woodrow Wilson, he comes to this with this, with his plan, right? His 14 points, which are, you know, essentially these guidelines or his guidelines for how the world could be rebuilt after the war is over how do great britain and france for example how what is their reaction to wilson's 14 points that is a complex question and part of that just depends
2: upon who you who you were at the time there are some phenomenal resources out there and i could not more highly suggest Dr. Margaret Macmillan's Paris 1919. It's this spectacular book that really delves into this. You can also find a series of lectures she did prior to that book, and it is uh, titled something along that same line, Paris Paris Peace Treaties, uh, Six Months That Changed the World, uh, and that is a spectacular resource, um, particularly for teachers uh, to listen to and really dives into to it. By the time people go into any peace treaty, they really are already looking to some of those next things. They know what they need to bring back for their domestic and they're paying attention to what their domestic politics needs. That They said that they were going to do this thing and this is a thing that they must have. You have both Britain and France, uh, as well as all of these other individuals around the table who are each doing the job of diplomacy, right? They're, they're each trying to get out of the series of negotiations what might best fit their national needs, at the same time, I would say many of them, and Woodrow Wilson is a really good example. Many of them still are working towards that global ideal. And the treaty is a really good example of uh, some uh, a lot of good intentions for a global idea that get tripped up by the realities of individuals working to a multitude of needs, including their own national governments and time frames and needing to be reelected in uh, some individuals instances the idea of the 14 points the 14 points was idealized and Woodrow Wilson who had been a professor in this area. This is something that he had really spent a lot of time thinking about. It did not survive unscathed. Matter of fact, Woodrow Wilson was willing to give up the majority of those ideas and those ideals so that he might get the key idea that he thought was most important, right? The League of Nations, which ultimately the United States never agrees to do. Uh, We ultimately have to craft our own agreements with Germany.
3: When it comes to the peace talks, you have 30 nations attending. So this is not going to be an easy feat. When people talk about the peace treaty that ends World War One, they tend to talk about the Treaty of Versailles of 1919. That was just the treaty with Germany. There were many other treaties. There were a lot of countries at war. Germany and the other central powers are not invited. You have 30 nations, but Germany and the central powers are not invited. Do understand that while there are 30 countries present, they are not equal. You have countries that are considered greater powers and those that were smaller powers. We typically hear of or speak of what is known as the big four. And we're talking about the United States, Great Britain, France, and Italy. There is no better proof of this than the seating chart that exists that shows where each country's representative sat at the peace talks. And I'm also going to link that seating chart in the comments so that you can take a look at it.
1: For Woodrow Wilson, I I interviewed the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Museum and Library and one of the things I was discussing with their curator there was, you know, the fact that Woodrow Wilson gets sick while he's in Paris, you know, negotiating this treaty. And, you know, there's a bit of disagreement amongst historians. There are some people who say, yes, he did in fact have the great influenza. There are some people who say, no, they don't believe that to be true. They think that maybe he had um, another stroke. But he's ill, and he's kind of not able to, he, he's not at his best, let's say, right, when he's, you know, fighting for, you know, his points in the treaty. And, and you're right, you know, the only thing that really gets into the treaty is this idea of a League of Nations, which, of course, fails, because, you know, that cornerstone the United States, we aren't there, it's our, it's our baby, it's our brainchild, but we don't get involved. And for the treaty, you know, one of the things that I always discussed in the classroom was, you know, a peace treaty should create peace. But what it did was really lay the framework for a future conflict. If you look at what happens to Germany, right? There's this war guilt clause within the treaty. You know, Germany and her allies caused the loss and damage. You Mm -hmm. have to take ownership over this conflict. Germany had to disarm itself. You know, it's only allowed to have a very limited army, more of a police force, if anything, if you're really going to look at it, you know, no submarines, no air force, right. not allowed to have battleships. Um, you know, their, their goal is to decrease the chance of another war. But with that war guilt clause also came the demand for reparations. And it's not just something that current German citizens are going to have to pay. This is going to be something that future German citizens are going to have to pay. And why do you think ultimately the Treaty of Versailles of 1919, why does this fail?
2: There are so many good answers to that. Uh
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know it's not just one answer.
2: I want to start right and which should not be included. Like the first answer is hubris, but that's unfair. That's, that's really an unfair answer. And I know that some historians do. There are so many reasons why it fails. And and part of it is upon us to be able to really look at that and take those lessons and be able to move move them forward. So yeah, sure. One of those answers might be hubris, but we're all guilty of that on a daily basis. Uh, It's just that we don't do it on The grand scale when you are giving yourself six months to decide to remap the Middle East. So, there are some choices that are made from an early 20th century perspective that may rub 21st century listeners the wrong way. You know, there's a right way to do it, there's a wrong way to do it, and that these individuals know more, know better, you know, the influence of that social Darwinism Uh that does create a real vacuum of knowledge around the the stakeholder and around the power table that is making some decisions. So it's one really good example right there, right? That you, you don't have some of the voices that need to be around the table. And when there are some of those voices, they may not have been listened to where people might rely on the relationships that they had developed during a war and during a conflict, which are valid and good and brought them as allied leaders. But you might have individuals who are better equipped for this era of diplomacy. You also have a lack of clarity with an inspirational idea that was wonderful and incredibly detrimental to the peace of the 20th century. Woodrow Wilson, in as part of his 14 points, explains that there should be uh, that there should be an opportunity for individuals to have some level of self-determination, right? That we're going to bring we're going to make way for democracy around the world. Basically, what happens is this idea of self-determination is takes hold and what self-determination means for one party is potentially the exact opposite, right? Yeah. Uh, for another party. And that becomes untenable.
1: Self-determination. I mean, I just want to kind of cover that for a second, because if you're not history aficionado, you don't know what that term means. So self-determination is a concept that a nation or a people of a country could decide for themselves what type of government they want to have. And you mentioned this can be perceived in many different ways. So What people think when they hear that term is very different from what he meant. So he's Wilson is saying that there should be consent of the governed, but there are regions that have been colonized and they're saying, Hey, wait a minute. Does this mean that we can be free? Are we getting our independence? So like you mentioned earlier, you have areas within the Middle East that are being kind of carved up by Great Britain and France, for example, but then you have other groups within Europe that are getting independence, new nations are being created, they're gonna be independent. You're gonna have Poland, you're gonna have Yugoslavia, you're gonna have Czechoslovakia, but that's not happening in the Middle East, at least not yet, it will, but not yet.
2: Oh, and that still continues. So you asked about the troubles of, right, the, the troubles of the treaty in and of itself. And I would say one of those great problems with the treaty is One of the fundamental ideas going into the treaty, when you look at Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, many of them are very geographic related, right? It talks about Austria-Hungary being provided opportunities for self-determination. It is saying you're going to redraw the borders of the Balkan region, which we know were on fire at that moment, and certainly there have been, uh, continue to be uh, tensions throughout the 20th century, there's the 12th point of there is the Turkish state and then the Polish state. So there's a lot of this idea of self-determination. And when you look back at uh, the fifth point, it is about adjusting colonial claims. And so you have this idea that fits so beautifully within this concept of right American democracy, that everyone should have a say for Themselves. Now, that is something that inside our own nation, that we identify as Americans, we've had a war over, uh, right? And in the Civil War, and that we have to keep working it. We have to keep sacrificing to be able to do that. And when this idea of self uh, determination—that everybody should have a say to um, their the their governments you don't have everybody coming around the table with the same idea of uh, what that say should look like, right? You have yeah. Koreans who are literally walking across the, the continent to be there in Paris to say, we deserve to govern ourselves. You have a man who later goes by the name of Ho Chi Minh, who went to Paris to advocate for Indo-Chinese peoples to no longer be under the control of France. You have a variety of conflicting objectives of individuals and uh, individuals who have high ideals, who feel like they were on the same page with the gentleman who helped win the war, who is the leader of this. And so there's a disillusionment that comes there's also a shift that occurs because of this right you've got in february of 1922 you finally have this shift of britain and its relationship in egypt because it actually begins some of the cracks and really to to create the fall of some of this imperial system in a larger way than had been occurring though it had been occurring before the war. So you just have this optimism and this hope and this idea that everyone has seemed to agree around but there was such lack of clarity in the details mm. of that though it might have brought everyone around the table to begin it was such a loose idea that we were bound to have disillusionment, disagreement and really hard feelings as people left that time of agreements. Uh, and you see that all throughout the, the next few years and, and what occurs and, and even in and of itself with Wilson and what he was willing to keep of his 14 points and, and what, he was, what he was not. I do wanna go back to one of your ideas that you spoke of uh, that is so important and sometimes it's, it's over it's overlooked Uh, That there are, in fact, several treaties that end the world war. You've got the Treaty of Versailles. It's going to be signed by the Allied Powers. And it's singularly with Germany. And that's signed on June 28th of 1919. And then you've got another treaty that's going to be signed by the Allied Powers, St. Germain. And that's with the Allied Powers in Austria. Then there's um, another signed uh, with Bulgaria in November of 1919, then the Treaty of Trianon, which is signed with, because Austria and Hungary split. The Treaty of Trianon is signed in uh, 1920 with Hungary. And then you've got the Treaty of Sevres, which is signed with the former Ottoman Empire, because by that point in time, you've got a, a shift that occurs there. So you have all of these other treaties, but the Treaty of Versailles sets the stage for a lot of map redrawing. You have so many things that are decided And there wasn't necessarily an intention to keep Germany away from the planning table, but that is certainly what happened. They had spent so much time and so much effort as as allied powers. There were so many nations represented around that side, uh, combatants, belligerents who had all made agreements in and of themselves. They were having such a difficult time coming to consensus. About what would be included, what wouldn't? That by the time Germany got there, uh, Germany didn't have an opportunity, and this makes it unique in the history of war treaties. Germany really didn't have a say in some of that. That there wasn't uh, what would come from some of these, uh, some of these other more successful treaties. You know, potentially, some historians might argue that the. Uh, the, the treaty with the former Ottoman Empire is in fact, one of the most effective because they had a legitimate seat at the table. Uh, and out of that, right, you end up making um, some of those choices that are more fruitful because people, uh, not people, but nations on both sides needed to sacrifice to come to consensus.
1: Yeah. And mm-hmm. it, Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but e- even if you just look at the seating chart, for where countries were going and representatives of countries were going to be seated and how the tables were going to be. And I'm going to put a link for our listeners so they can see that seating chart. I mean, it really is unbelievable. There's You have all these nations who are represented, but the extent to which they have a voice is very different. The National World War One Museum is known for having a, a number of just really very special artifacts. And one of the things when I was looking at your website, which is excellent, if you are an educator, if you're any, I mean, anybody could really go and kind of get lost in your website for days with the amount of information that you have. But one of the great artifacts that piqued my interest is that you have the same model Belgian automatic pistol that was used by Gavrilo Princip to assassinate the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. You have the poppy field, which you talked about earlier, which I think is a very beautiful way, you know, to kind of honor and remember the soldiers who were killed during the war. But what are some of your favorite artifacts or exhibits within the museum?
2: That changes on the weekly of uh, many times in you know in connection with whatever I, I get the opportunity to to work on because really I mean World War 1 and this era connects uh, to so many things that make us who we are in the 21st centuries. We have the online collections database. I'm going to start there because we've got listeners who might have the opportunity right now to multitask. It provides you an opportunity to look through, I think it's over 48,000 digitized objects. And we've just in 2022, we went to a different online collections database system that allows you to zoom into the picture. So if anybody listening really wants to get a handle on um, mustache styling of World War One. you now can do it at our website, which is theworldwar.org. Just go to the space that says online collections database. Uh, but it's so surprising. I honestly, some of the letters I, that are in the collection are so deeply moving. One of the, there's a gentleman who always ended his, letters with things like, and a kiss upon every wave between where I am and where you are, something along that line. And it's just so beautiful. And it's so poignant and being able to steward these stories. Oh yes. The letters, some of these diaries and what people are experiencing. And so many of these things are also, you get a chance to see just how human and how very much these individuals are teenagers that writing that makes it so easy to identify with. There's some, some poetry that a teacher might find in, in a kid's notebook today. I mean, it's really funny. They just, yeah. there's there's a humanity there that we get to help steward within the collection. Uh, as far as some amazing, uh, other amazing pieces of people happen to be able to come to Kansas City and we would welcome uh, you uh, to uh, yeah to come into the main galleries. I mean, it's the the space itself is extraordinary. It is open opened in 1926. It's got this in uh, Indiana limestone that just has these beautiful varying shades. And uh, we have a, a Liberty Memorial Tower, which is actually larger than the Statue of Liberty, from the tip of her toe to the top of her torch. That you can go up into the top of and in that collection that we have, that we've been collecting since 1920. We have, I think our oldest piece is Fragments from the Cathedral of Rome, uh, which, you know, date to the the Middle Ages. And we have toilet paper, that propaganda toilet paper of a a cartoon of of the Kaiser. And it has some stuff in it and in French, which I'm not going to say, but if you get the opportunity to come, especially if you have the opportunity to come with middle schoolers, I promise it's going to be their favorite too.
1: Oh, awesome. Um,
2: yeah, it's just, we really do have, I think all Americans should really be proud of the collection and the story that we tell at the National World War One Museum and Memorial. And we are so thankful for the global community because it is that global story that we tell. And it is actually from the government of France that we received those fragments from the Cathedral of Rome. And we have, we get the opportunity to steward these stories of the world right in the heart of
1: America. You look at what happened in the world from 1914 to 1918, and you can see those rumblings of what happened then kind of still impacting us today. And issues that we attempted to settle at that peace treaty will be revived yet again in the 1940s. And it's still, it's still kind of, we're still dealing with it today. If you look at what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, when the Russian empire fell after World War I, Ukraine gets its independence. It's short-lived, but it gets its independence. If you look at you know, how we honor those who die today, whether it be through Veterans Day here in the United States with Remembrance Day, uh, there's a famous saying that person dies three times, once when they physically die, once when they're buried. And the last time somebody says, their name. And it's so important to say the names and to remember those who made the ultimate sacrifice so that we can be living the lives that we're living today. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with me over the course of these two days. Our listeners don't know that, but it took us two days for this. <laughs> um, but I thank you so, You're so much. You're delighted to
2: talk with. Thank you so much. It was lovely. Uh, it was lovely to be in conversation. And there's just so much conversation to be had about
1: World War One. But I thank you. I thank you for your time. I thank you for your knowledge and your expertise. This was great. Thank you so much. And thank you to you all for listening as well. I hope you each
2: have a beautiful day.
3: Now, the poem that Laura mentioned earlier in Flanders fields is so beautiful again she mentioned the nitrates from the gunpowder but also you know the soil was incredibly fertile because of the decaying bodies that are buried underneath the earth the bodies of the soldiers who gave their lives for their countries and so i want to read that poem in flanders fields and it's by a canadian doctor dr john mcrae who wrote the poem after witnessing a 1915 battle in Belgium in Flanders fields, the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place. And in the sky, the lark still bravely singing fly scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived felt Dawn saw sunset glow loved and were loved And now we lie in Flanders fields, take up our quarrel with the foe to you from falling hands. We throw the torch be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep though. Poppies grow in Flanders fields. And, you know, all throughout early November and up to Veterans Day or Remembrance Sunday, In especially places throughout Europe and especially in Great Britain, you will see people wearing the poppies in remembrance of the soldiers. And I think it's a beautiful tradition.
0: Yes, I happened to be in France and London at the same time of the 100 year anniversary of the armistice. And they had all, when we were in London, there was the big parade. We actually were, Laurie and I were dragging luggage through mobs at the parade everybody was wearing the poppies and we went into the bars and the pubs and they were all wearing poppies and they were all dressed up and they were they were celebrating
3: yeah it's it's a beautiful tradition and if you you know you think about it many european countries they lost generations of people the total cost of life between soldiers and civilians is estimated to be about 40 million people a tr- it's a tremendous, tremendous loss of life. This war was to be the war to end all wars, but instead it set the stage for yet another world war just a decade later.
0: That was fantastic. Thank you to Laura from me as well. And now we will start to tackle the beginnings of that next decade. And the build up to World War II. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.